and we're recording. Hey, we're back. We are back, and guess what? Now we're in the same place. Whoa. Only for this one, though. Yeah. And maybe future ones. It's been a really long time since we've done this because, um, well, life. Some of us moved across the country. Some of us uh, have been renovating their house. Some of us. So, yay, we're back. I'm probably going to do this more often. Hopefully, maybe, probably. Yeah, the boys are back in town. We also have White Claws. We're very millennial like that. Don't give away our age. We're very boomer like that. Hmm. Says squinty eyes. Um, okay, so I think we're probably going to try to do this more on the regular soon, but uh, here's, here's a, a, a relatively medium-length episode. Uh, to just start us off. So, this is about the disappearance of Paula Jean Weldon. Have you heard that name? No, I haven't. We should, we should, we should do a bit about the new music. Oh yeah, we got new intro music. Yeah. Wait, wait here it is. Hi everyone, Matt here. Just wanted to pop in with a quick programming note before you listen to our snazzy new theme music. Um, I wanted to let you know that this episode was recorded at the tail end of 2019. Uh, That means it was before COVID and before 2020 really kicked off in earnest and everything kind of went buck wild in the world. So um, I say that to, to preface this episode just as one that's kind of not really relevant for the current times um and also to to let you know not to panic that mel and i were recording in the same room um i don't know if we'll get a chance to do that again for a while but it was it was nice to to do once in a while so um don't panic when we say that uh i also wanted to let you know that um obviously this is an episode that's about six months seven months old now um we're finally catching up on our our audio uh backlog um getting into editing again and really trying to kind of revitalize our workflow and and get things uh set up to write and record and edit regularly and to, to get some content posted. So um, if you have any thoughts or suggestions, mysterypodcast.com is still where our main feed is, where all of our episodes and sources are published and uh, where we have a contact form where you can let us know any thoughts or questions or episode suggestions that you might have. So um, feel free to visit us there. And uh, otherwise, thank you for listening and enjoy the show. great it's pretty snazzy yeah um new year new us new music oh yeah yeah it's not 2019 right now um (laughs) so um paula jean weldon is who this story is about this is about a particular um missing persons case that uh just kind of struck my fancy it's it's Kind of an unsolved mystery, um, but it also coincided with several other unsolved mysteries. This is just kind of the more prominent story from the area for reasons we'll get into. Um, So Paula Jean Weldon was born on October 19th, 1928. Uh, She was born in Stanford, Connecticut. 
Um, she was the oldest of four daughters born to W. Archibald Walden and her mother, Jean Douglas. Well, I mean, you got to be going places with a name like that. Right. W. Archibald Walden. Weld- Weldon, excuse me. Um, her childhood, as far as I could tell, is is pretty much entirely undocumented and inconsequential and probably completely normal for the time. You know, 1930s-ish. Um her father was an engineer at the local Revere Copper and Brass Company, uh, and he designed many household objects. Uh, the most notable one that I found on Wikipedia and through some other sources, probably also from Wikipedia, was that he made a copper-coated cocktail shaker as his most uh, uh, prominent uh, engineering feat, I guess. That was the most popular product he developed at this place. That's pretty nice. Right? It's copper. Like, I want one. Well, and it's actually funny because um, Revere, this this copper and brass company, is actually still around today, but they have ceased domestic manufacturing in the U.S. Now they manufacture everything under their brand overseas, but they're owned by Corning, who is the makers of, of Gorilla Glass. Who is owned also by World Kitchen, who own a ton of stuff. Like, they own a ton of manufacturing conglomerates. Absolutely none of that matters, though, except to say that they're they're kind of well-off people. Um, <laughs> so, Paula graduated from high school in 1945 and began attending the Bennington College in Vermont as an art major. Bold choice. Um, probably, you know... She's an art major, but it's at the 30s, so maybe it is a good choice. I don't know. Right. I guess that maybe then it's kind of like, you know, do art or be a homemaker and take classes on how to fold napkins. Right. So I guess art is... Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Art is probably a good choice. Um, so she was a very normal college student, super active social life. She square danced and hiked with her friends around Bennington. Um and she made uh, several friends at the nearby Williams College in Willing- Williamstown, Massachusetts. Um, during her first semester, she took a part-time job in the college's uh, commons dining hall. Um, and this is where it gets a little weird. So she has this job, and on Sunday, December 1st, towards the end of her first semester, right? She's right. 18, 19. Um, she'd be 19 now because it's it's December. Uh, Paula was working through the lunch shift at the dining hall. She finished up in the early afternoon, you know, somewhere afternoon between 12 and 2. She left her job and returned to her dorm room. Uh, we know this because she had a short conversation with her roommate, Elizabeth Johnson, and told her roommate, I'm through with all my studies. I'm taking a long walk. Um, she left around 2.45 p.m., and uh, that was the last anyone ever saw or heard from Paula. Well, that's unfortunate. And that's the end of the story. Thanks for listening. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. Um, so seriously, she was she was actually never heard from again, um, which is actually tragic. When she left, she was wearing a red parka with a fur collar, jeans, and really lightweight tennis shoes. Um, it was a cold night um, in December in in you know the northeast United States. Right. I mean, but it still might be a above freezing, around freezing, but still you don't want to be out in the elements with just some tennies and right. a parka. Weather data is, you know, spotty once you go back that far, but as near as I can tell, it was around freezing. Like there maybe have been some light snow, but it was definitely cold. So a parka, jeans, tennis shoes, these were like totally normal things to be wearing for that time for a short walk. Right. Well, and it sounds like or even a long walk. Right. And you might get into this, but if she was just planning on going on a walk, she probably didn't bring like a wallet or money or... Or a water bottle. <laughs> or 
sports survival gear. Yeah. Right. A can of beer even. Yeah. No, she she probably didn't bring anything. She was just going for a walk. Um, a long walk. Right. She A long walk. She was probably a little bit underdressed, but she did have a, a parka and, and, you know, walking shoes. Right. Um, what time did you say again? Uh, this was around early afternoon. So the sun okay, was so still up. Okay, so the sun up. was still up. Yeah. The sun was still up. It's, you know, for those that don't live in the northern part of the hemispheres, um, the sun here it's it's about that time of the year right now and the sun sets at like 4:45 it's very depressing but it's still light here which is good for her um right. well presumably um it was a cold night um her roommate assumed that she uh returned and had just gone to the library to cram for finals as the day went on um now she never returned uh, it's the beginning of December, so it is final season. So, right. like, it's not that uncommon that your roommate might disappear for a while. Um, when she still hadn't returned the next day, her roommate notified the college administrators. The college's president contacted her father, W. Archibald Weldon. Um, mm-hmm. He made the trip down to Bennington immediately and actually began coordinating the search efforts. Wow. So he's just like balls to the walls. We're going to find my daughter right away. Day one. Yep. No, at this time, there was actually not a police force in this area. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just like utterly unbelievable when you think about it, that there existed a time in the United States of America where certain areas, including a college campus, did not have a police force. No cops. Okay. Um, So there was like a county sheriff and everything, uh, but, and there were, you know, obviously sheriff's office for the county. Um, There was a sheriff's office for the county, but but there was no like local police force. The campus didn't have on-campus police or security. They didn't have security, yeah. Right. Um, so the campus was scoured, again, coordinated by her father and, and the campus administrators. Once it was determined that she wasn't on the campus at all, the Bennington County State Attorney's Office and the county sheriff were notified and brought in to assist with the search for Paula. So this is like the DA's getting, coming in, right, and being like, okay, I guess I'm the highest legal authority in the land. Let's try to figure something out. Um, now, Real quick, I want to take a detour and, and point out that Vermont is a, is a really beautiful state, um, especially around fall time. But it has a ton of natural forests, and it, it is a beautifully famous place to uh, visit when uh, the fall colors change and everything turns orange and yellow and red. Mm-hmm. It's just a really beautiful part of the U.S. Um, and near Williamsburg, starting at the uh, Massachusetts state line, is a famous uh, trail called the Long Trail. That's just what it's called. The trail itself is seven, uh, 273 miles long and runs wow. the entirety of the state of Vermont. It traverses eight separate mountain peaks and even coincides and runs uh, concurrently with the famous Appalachian Trail for a little ways. Um, so the trail, the trail starts at the southern border of Vermont at Woodford Hollow and heads north towards Glastonbury Mountain is the first peak that you'd hit if you're going north. Is that within walking distance of the college <laughs> campus? Uh, yes. Vaguely. Okay, well, I'm just saying, you know, is it like she would have had to have walked for like four hours and then she would show up at the trail? Right. No, it is close enough that she would be able to like walk okay. there and make it to the long trail. It is a long walk, like a long, long walk, but but we'll get to how that might have might have happened. Um, 
so Paula loved the outdoors and she enjoyed hiking. She enjoyed wildlife. Um, she, she, when, you know, she was obviously an art major, so she was creative. And one of the things that she reportedly liked doing is, is painting and drawing nature. Okay. Um, and she did enjoy just being outside itself. So she may have considered changing her, she may have even considered changing her major from art to botany. Um, according to, to one of her friends, obviously she never had the chance, probably would have been a good career move. Just saying. Um, in the days after Paula's disappearance, the search kept widening. Um, police ran a missing poster campaign in the local Bennington newspaper, um, after which an employee of the paper actually reported he had seen Paula hiking along the long, along the long trail uh, after or on the afternoon of her disappearance. So, so then that would be the last sighting, possibly. So far. So far. Yeah. Okay. So, so... That's kind of interesting how that works out, though, because, like, they put a paper or a, a picture in the paper of Paula saying, hey, have you seen this woman? A guy at the paper publishing the paper is like, I've seen her. Right. <laughs> like, it, it never obviously made it to print, but it never made it to print before somebody actually responded. Right. And something um, to talk about, too, just listening to how they didn't have a police force. And so all these people are getting brought in. Um I mean, I guess there's two ways to look at it. One being that they knew that they didn't have the proper support to deal with a missing person here. But also, like, this is a white chick from a pretty well-off family. Yep. So this is like a high-profile disappearance for the area. They probably don't have many crimes to be reported. They don't have people going missing or getting murdered. So, you know, to have a well-off family have their daughter go missing, I mean, they're going to want to put attention on it right away. Right. Which is not to say that other people in the area would get the same treatment. Right. That's that's a really good way to uh, to put it, especially since like her rich father, who's an engineer at the big manufacturing company just upstate, has come down to coordinate these search efforts. So right, and he's able to do that. Right, whereas he's... there's lots of other people who couldn't just be like, "Okay, bye work. Right, like, my daughter's missing. I'm gonna head up the search and rescue party." Right, they'd lose their house, and if their daughter came back, they'd have no house to come back to. Like you know, right. it's, it's it 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 is. This is like a, a I would say a, a privileged family even for the time, and. This is a a well documented disappearance because of, oh, of yeah, those for circumstances. Sure. Um, so this guy who who reported this, um, this guy who worked at the local paper, reported that she was actually headed north, deeper into the woods along the long trail. Um, what was he doing there? Well, we'll get there. Maybe. Sorry. Um, so Paula's last known location and heading. Um, and it would be the last th – so this was Paula's last known location and heading, and this would be the last lead that anyone would have for some time. Um, within two weeks, the college was closed for several days uh, while uh, students and faculty participated in search efforts. Like, this was this was a big deal. They stopped classes, and everybody – it was it was an all-hands-on effort. Um, friends, family, acquaintances, firefighters, even the National Guard uh, from that time was called in, and, and they searched the area. Uh, round the clock for several days, ground and air searches were conducted uh, along the first 10 miles of the long trail. I don't know how the air searches were conducted. I have to assume, like, obviously, like, small planes. Mm-hmm. I don't know how effective that would be. <laughs> well, especially depending on how dense the forest is. I mean, exactly. I guess that stuff is dying, but I mean, I'm, I guess also... Would they have had access to, like, infrared to try and see? I don't know, man. I'm just thinking out loud. This is like pre, this is like pre-radar days. So, like, no, no, this is around the beginning of radar days. So, like, yeah, no, this is 
This is not advanced technology, and this isn't like aerial searches with helicopters right. or anything. But this hey, is, they're trying. They're okay. trying. This is like this is <laughs> for in, in double prop planes. Um, so the assumption was made that that Paula had somehow made it to the Long Trail, um, had had walked north along the Long Trail. There's many, like most national park trails, there's many branches, many places for for someone to get lost along. So the assumption was Paula had gotten lost in the woods. Like they're thinking an accident. An accident or just gotten lost and was, you know, out in the woods somewhere, unable Didn't to Didn't know how to get back. back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she was probably or potentially injured somewhere along the trail. Mm-hmm. So they were, you know, looking for signs of, of, you know, disturbed ground where places where somebody might, you know, have fallen off a short embankment or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and real quick, short detour, just for those curious, survival tips for forest. If you are lost in the forest, uh, stay still and wait for rescue. Don't try to find your way back. That's how people end up more lost because people try to find or make their way closer to civilization and they end up turned around and going the wrong way. Unless you have an exact heading and you're very familiar with the area, if you get lost, stay put, wait for rescue. Um, If you can, find fresh water, but don't under, under any circumstances try to navigate your way out, even if you're like, quote, unquote, pretty sure. (laughs) The assumption by search and rescue is that someone lost along a trail is still somewhere within the perimeter of the trail and may be injured. So they search primarily along the area of a trail. So as soon as you think you're lost and as soon as you don't know where you are, stop moving. Mm -hmm. Stay where you are because you, even if you don't know the direction that the trail is, you're still within a perimeter of that trail and search and rescue is going to be looking along the perimeter of that trail. Right, because they radiate out from the trail. And this is something that we see very often um, just taking a detour when we're talking about you know, people who are on even park trails, so not necessarily out in the forest, but, you know, if there's been a crime, yeah. they start on the trail and they say, okay, we're going to go so many miles out, and then they fan out from that trail. Exactly. Um, and especially if... Just because you're a pretty good hiker doesn't mean you know what's underneath you or what land might give away or all this kind of stuff. So, yeah. I mean, we, we want everyone to have a... Fun out in the woods and be safe. Yeah, but that's this is like you know you you when researching this story there was a ton of things and like even ads that popped up that were like search and rescue tips and how to survive in the woods and basically the the gist of all of them is stay put if you're lost stay where you are build a fire if you can to try to make some smoke um, and you know before that take some pre planning make sure that somebody knows you're going out hiking. Yeah, please <laughs> please tell people when you're going to be going out somewhere like that and this is not to say that if she was injured that she deserved it or that you know well that's what you get for not paying attention just saying that you know i think that a lot of times when you're in a situation like that where you're like oh shit i'm lost i don't know what's going on you might panic so you know and this is this is totally based on the assumption that it wasn't foul play yes um and that's that's a different story yeah right now the assumption is still you know no foul play paula went on a long walk and got lost poor kid accidents happen yeah yeah um so uh Back to the story. Point is, even though through exhaustive efforts and and who knows how many man hours, considering they closed an entire college to search for her, right. um, literally no clues or leads were found other than the fact that she was hiking on the long trail. Eighteen-year-old uh, Paula Weldon uh, was missing, and all the police knew is that she was headed north along the long trail. Uh, sometime around the afternoon, evening of December first, nineteen forty-six. 
this is high profile for this area. Like this entire town stopped during the holiday season of 1946 to search for this person. Um, so like with all things like this and, you know, even even back before the days of the Internet, a bunch of gossip started and theories popped up and things happened. Um Small towns love gossip, right? They do. Uh, So Paula had apparently been in high spirits when she'd left her job. Um, With no sign of Paula had been found, uh, police did that frustrating thing that they always seem to do. They speculate that Paula ran off to begin a new life, maybe with some unknown lover. And that is just lazy, in my opinion. How many people actually do that is what I want to know. Like, can I have some statistics? Because I'm pretty sure that you are less likely to run off with some unnamed mysterious lover just out of nowhere than literally any of the other options. Mm -hmm. So I think that's just lazy. Yep. Uh, Some people in the town were gossiping and, and, you know, there were were names behind these stories, but I'm not going to throw them in there because they're... Because it's gossip, right? Because it's gossip. We want confirmed, reported. Yep. Paula had apparently been depressed and uh, somebody in the town had it on good authority or that's not their verbiage. Quote unquote, but yeah. Quote unquote. They, they figured that she'd commit su- committed suicide because she'd been depressed. Um, and also, of course, there's the grim but obvious theory that she'd been, you know, kidnapped or murdered and was, you know. Eaten by wildlife. Eaten by which wildlife. also is not very likely to happen. It's not, especially in that part of the country. Yeah. <laughs> You're more likely to die by moose than bear. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't eat you. And they don't. They're just scared. They're just assholes. They're just scared big boys. Scared big boys. That's nicer. Okay. Um, So so there's a lot of like contradicting theories here floating around and none of them really make that much sense because there's really no evidence to support them. We have literally Um, no evidence right now other than she's gone. Yeah. Now, you may you may be asking yourself um, why this seemingly random speculation Uh. Even as far back as like you know we've we've done cases back to like the mid eighteen hundreds, and usually there even if there's a uncoordinated investigation, even if there's just like a basic investigation, um, they don't just do a search. Uh, they do things like interviews. So where are the interviews with the friends and family? Why haven't I talked about her friends and roommates and potential love interests? Well, that's because at uh, this time in Vermont, as I said, there was no state police, so we're missing. Even with all these man hours and all this searching, we're missing a lot of the basic police framework Work. that happens when somebody goes missing. There's not boots on the ground, uh, like interviewing her friends. Mm-hmm. There's nobody documenting all of this until several weeks later. Yikes. Um, so- well, and also, is this an open case or a closed case? Do you know? I'm sorry. I was Spoilers. just going to say, that also affects what we, the public, know. True, because if it was a closed case, there still could be sealed records. Um, or if it's open, they might not be willing to share. True. So, yeah, that's what I mean. If there's if there's a, if, if it's an open case, there might still be, you know, sealed records that are, that are kept away from the public's eye. Um, again, there was no state police. Uh, there was, there was sheriffs that acted as kind of a town police force, but they, you know, a sheriff's office that acted as a town police force, but they didn't do that much uh, in in the way of, of, you know, big felonious crimes or missing persons cases. They were equipped for bar fights and, and you know. Petty theft. Petty theft, things like that. Vandalism, maybe. Yeah. Right. At the, at the high end. Um, this was also a case where um, there was no indication that Paula had had crossed state lines at all. So, nope. so the FBI is not going to get involved. Exactly. There's no there's no federal investigation here. This is a state. This is a local affair only. Um, and during the first ten to, ten days of the search, there were actually no records kept at all. Oh my so, goodness! So, no. 
So everything I've told you up until this point are things that were documented after the fact uh, or things that were documented by Paula's father. This is so frustrating, y'all. Yes. Um, so there were a lot of random, random theories that the state's attorney had cobbled together um, and with the, the town sheriffs and the National Guard. Um, but but there was no actual like formal investigation open. There was, there was just a, a missing person and a bunch of people trying to help. <laughs> right. Which... You know, uh, there's there's power in putting putting an official stamp on things. You right. Know? Well, and then you also have to start to call into question, did they not find any evidence in those initial searches or was evidence destroyed? It's a good question. We don't know. It's hard to say. Um, so the uh, the the mountain of evidence is more a couple breadcrumbs and not much after all this time and you know the old adages after you know the first 48 hours there's you know chances are slim. slimmer yeah yeah um so this is when uh w archibald uh began to pressure the vermont's governor to seek uh help from professional law enforcement from outside the area which like Agree with him there. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, maybe this guy's only contribution to society at large was a copper-coated tumbler, but... He's got some good thoughts. He's making some good suggestions, okay? Right. <laughs> so, Vermont's governor actually reached out to uh, the governor of Connecticut uh, for assistance. Um, and Connecticut's own detective, Robert Rundle, and policewoman Dorothy Scoville were assigned to the investigation. Those are some power names, too. Wow. Yeah, yeah Rund- Rundle and Scoville. So this is our Molly and Sculter. Yes. Quite literally. I said that right. Um, Mulder and Scully. It was fine. Um, so they began the arduous and difficult process of interviewing every single person that Mo- that uh, Paula had to interact with at yeah, excuse me. Interacted with. Interacted with during her time in Bennington College. Um, and it's been days and days now since she went missing. It's been about two weeks. Right. So people's memories are already probably starting to, to fade, fade. Or, from that day. You know, the human memory is is flawed. Oh, yeah. So, you know, even... Things like the guy that remembered her hiking along the trail headed north, uh, you know, not documenting his first impression. He probably remembers something, you know, roughly different. It, mm-hmm. He might not remember what she was wearing after two weeks. He might not remember exactly what time of day it was. You know, it's it's the details get lost the, the, sometimes. Yeah, the, the details get lost. The major pieces usually stay there. But, you know, especially over time, after all this emotional effort that people are putting into it, things get colored in a way. Um so I'm going to talk through the big events in the order that they occurred on the day Paula disappeared. Okay. Um, the first important person that Paula saw after she left her dorm room was a uh, 55-year-old person named Fred Gadet. Um, now, he had been arguing with his girlfriend when Paula walked by their house, according to him, on Harbor Road on her way to the Long Trail, which is about 20 miles away. Paula didn't have a driver's license. She didn't drive. Okay. Um, so, this was after she had talked to her roommate? Yep. This is after- Okay. She, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. So, to set the stage, the they're interviewing everybody in the town. They're interviewing everybody from from her college on the way to the Long Trail. And this guy, Fred Gadet, a lumberjack, um, is, is kind of the first person that they could identify that had 
had seen her after she'd left her okay. Um Now, next, after that, Lewis Knapp, a local man, told investigators that he had picked up a hitchhiking woman matching Paula's description at 3 p.m. on December 1st, just outside the college at, college's entrance. And it's important to note that at this time, hitchhiking was pretty normal. Yeah. This was a thing that you just did. If you didn't have a driver's license, you didn't have a car, and it was, you know, someone was going in the same direction, not very far... You probably were a hitchhiker. And hope that you didn't get murdered. But people didn't even worry about that. It's not to say that people weren't getting murdered who were hitchhiking, but I think that we were more innocent back then before widespread media coverage. Yeah. So bad for your mental health or something. I don't know. Right. But anyway, so she hitchhiked and we're assuming she wasn't killed by this local man. We're assuming no. Um, And he actually remembered her because she had slipped while climbing into his truck, um, caught herself so she didn't fall all the way on the ground, and Knapp told her to be careful. This guy, Lewis Knapp, told her to be careful. Um, Apparently, there were no other words exchanged between them until he dropped Paul off in his driveway, which was on Route 9, right next to the Long Trail, which is where she had told him that she'd wanted to go as she was climbing in. Okay. Um, She thanked him for the ride and walked off. This guy's name is Knapp. Are there at least two P's? There are two P's. Okay. It's K-N-A-P-P, but it's like... I hope she wasn't Paula napped. Ugh. Everyone. I'm done. Uh, Everyone. So, so the next... <laughs> no. And, so, so the next and last sighting was roughly 45 minutes later near Brickford Hollow. Bickford Hollow, I'm sorry. Where the long trail begins. Um, it was around 4 p.m., it's, you know, obviously December where it's cold out. So it's getting, it's going to get dark soon. Yep. This is really surprising to me that she's getting there so late in the afternoon based on what they've pieced together. Right. So as we said, sunsets from like 4, 35 o'clock. Like we're, we're talking, we're, we're right around. We're actually just after in the story. We're just after what is the shortest day of the year. Right. So, um, at this point it's, it's all up in terms of seasonal weather, but uh, it it is really the long nights are happening and it does get very cold at night. And dark. And dark. Um, So again, the last sighting, 45 minutes later, around 4 p.m., Ernie Whitman, a watchman, warned her about heading into the mountains unprepared. Um, She continued anyways. Now back to Fred Gadet, this guy that had seen Paula... He's a newspaper dude, right? No, no. Fred Gadette is the lumberjack who'd seen her walking by his house. Okay. I'm he sorry. Was, yeah. So so in order, we have Paula leaving her job, going to her dorm room, mm-hmm. talking to her roommate. Mm-hmm. Her roommate then never saw her again when she left around 2 o'clock. Okay. Paula walked by Fred Gadette. His he house. He was arguing with his girlfriend. He was arguing with his okay. girlfriend. Um, he remembers seeing Paula walk by his house. He told the investigators at the time. Um, then she met Lewis Knapp, who is the guy who gave her a ride. And did not Lewis Knapp her. He did not Lewis Knapp her. And then uh, he met. she met Ernie Whitman, who warned her about going into the mountains unprepared. He's a watchman, and he cares about safety. And she ignored him. Right. So we don't know where Newspaper Guy fits in on this timeline. Right. Well, Newspaper... Now. Yeah. Newspaper Guy, we don't know where he fits in. Um, and that is that is one of the odd moieties of the story. Uh, but back to Fred Gadette, the lumberjack. Okay. According to the initial interview he gave the investigators, a while after Paula walked by his house, he had stormed away from the argument he'd been having with his girlfriend. He told police that he then left his home and taken a drive in his truck, heading toward a gravel driving portion of the Long Trail. 
in the same direction as Paula. He's not doing himself any favors. I'm not going to lie, guys. Yeah. In a later <laughs> interview, he told police that he had, in fact, not done that. <laughs> and that after storming away, he instead went and sat in his shack, spending the rest of the day alone in his shack with no alibi. Wait, so is his shack his house or is it separate from his house? I assume he had some sort of tool shed or shack. See, I'm just picturing, guys, that he just built this shack out in the woods, like, by this trail. And he's like, I was just sitting in it. No, no, no. No, it's not even on the trail. So, first interview, he gave to, he talked to police. He told them, I drove up to the long trail. Second interview, he's right. like, oh, I didn't drive up to the long trail. I went and sat in my yard all day with no alibi and nobody saw me. Huh. Okay. S- suspicious, no? Right, which is like, once again, guys, this doesn't mean that he did it. But, like... He's being a weirdo, right? He's being quite the weirdo. Um, So after that, (laughs) he was considered a key person of interest. (laughs) I mean, I don't blame them. Right. Um, And through the investigation in 1946 and again uh, when the case was reopened in 1952, uh, I'm going to stop there and tell you that's, that's the last we know. Really? Yep. Nothing Nothing ever came of it. They were not able to connect Fred or anyone else to anything. Paula, Paula's, uh, you know, if if she made it away and lived out her life happy somewhere else under another assumed identity, we don't know. If her body is in the woods somewhere, we don't know. This is... My this. God, so they haven't found any physical evidence? Like, they never found her parka? They never found anything. They never found anything. Wow. Um, so, literally zero forensic evidence. Which is which is kind of a unique thing about, I guess, missing persons cases in in woods. Usually, they find some, especially for a well, well, well traveled trail like right, this yeah. one. This is a very popular trail, especially in the summer. So, for them to find no evidence of her body, and for none of the hikers in the subsequent decades, um, as you know, this case rose and fell in in popularity is is actually kind of surprising um right well and especially with clothing i mean clothing isn't something that very quickly breaks down it doesn't deteriorate right so unless somebody is trying to dispose of it or trying to hide it you know if somebody got hurt and they fall over dead in the woods even if their body wasn't really noticeable anymore because it had broken down you would usually still see like there's red out in the woods mm-hmm. where nothing else is red. Yep. And uh, so the case was the case was um, really kind of laid to rest in, in 1947 um, as the winter set in and and the search effort stopped. Um, the case was reopened in 1952 at the behest of, of Paula's father, W. Archibald. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, pressured local authorities to, to try to reopen the case and continue the search. Um, and he never stopped searching as far as I can tell. He, he lived his whole life in that area and, and was, was um, you know, Pretty upset. He wanted closure. He did. He wanted closure, or at least, you know, hopefully to find his daughter if she was somewhere. Like layered arrest. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, unfortunately, and, and and really for the town of Bennington, um, this was this was the uh, actually second um, of a few unsolved cases that happened in this area. Um, <gasps> We're going to have to talk about the other ones, man. You can't just leave us on a cliffhanger. Well, so here's the interesting thing about that. Um well, first off, let me tell you this. Uh, Fred Gadette was considered a, a person of interest in basically 
all of the cases that happened around this time because of his suspicious answers. Um, I think this was, you know, even if he did nothing, I think this is one of those cases where he did something suspicious, obviously, in giving contradictory information to the police and being one of the last people to see Paula alive. So he became a key person of interest when the case was reopened again and police talked to him several times. Um, But Fred Gadette did reportedly, according to other people in the town, this was decades later, Mm -hmm. get drunk several times at the town bar and brag that he knew where Paula's body was. Right. And then you always have to wonder, okay, so this is like fifth hand information. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, and even if somebody is bragging, saying that they know something when they're drunk, that doesn't mean it's true. Lots of people just make up shit. All the time. All the time. So you can't trust. I mean, I think it's important to report things like that. If you hear somebody drunk at a bar being like, I know where so-and-so's body is like, okay, probably should say something, but that doesn't mean that they did it. They might just be talking out their ass. Yep. Yeah. I mean, and what else does he have going on in his life? A girlfriend he fights with. Who maybe left him in a shack. Could have. Especially. And the the shack. And the shack. He's got a shack. Um, so, uh, In 1947, in July, um, so about seven months after Paula's disappearance, um, W. Archibald Weldon actually spoke the 1947 Vermont legislative session. Wow. And the disappearance of of Paula was actually one of the contributing factors, one of the main contributing factors, which led to the uh, contribution of, or which led to the creation, rather, of the first Vermont state police force. That's awesome. Right. So here he is doing something good that will benefit lots of other people. Yeah, in decades to come. So good for him. So yeah, so that that's that's kind of where this case comes from. You know, I, obviously Archibald Weldon or W. Archibald Weldon was a a well off man, and Paula was a a young well friendly, off young woman, yeah, well <laughs> young off, white woman, yeah, young white woman with lots of friends. You know, she was a popular person in the area. Her father was a popular person in 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 that whole area of Vermont. So this is a case where we have. Um, a set of privileged people who are able to make their message be heard, but mm-hmm. they do something that is ultimately very good with it. Yeah. Um, and this is this is actually of of the other disappearance disappearances in the area. This is by far the most well documented. For those reasons. <laughs> right, uh, right. For the aforementioned reasons. Right. Yes. And and the, the case of Paula Weldon is, is one that is often cited and I think is is often taught. Um when talking about northeastern police forces, hmm. um, Vermont's was was not obviously not the first police force in that part of the country, but in more rural areas of the uh, uh, more rural parts of that country, Vermont was one of the first to have an official state police force hmm. that wasn't just a bunch of local forces or local sheriffs. Um, so. I mentioned this area, other disappearances. From 1945 to 1950, five separate people, including Paula, vanished from Bennington, Vermont. This is a small town at the time. Wow. All similar circumstances, all relating to the woods or otherwise? All roughly relating. I mean, it's a woodsy area. Right, right. This isn't like a big city. This is a town. So, um... All students? No. They ranged from an eight-year-old boy up to a 74-year-old hunter. So... Okay. It's uh, it was a wide variety of people, and the area was eventually dubbed the Bennington Triangle after the Bermuda Triangle. Right. Obviously. By the way, the Bermuda Triangle. Quick tangent. It's dumb. 
Okay. There's nothing spooky or magical about the Bermuda Triangle. Do you know why most disappearances happen in the Bermuda Triangle? Why? Tell me, Matt. For the same reason that 70% of car accidents happen within five miles of home or whatever that statistic is. It's because that's where 75% of the driving is done. So, Makes of course, sense. that's where all of your accidents happen because you drive around your home more often than anywhere else. Like, you drive by your, your – you, like, especially since you consider if you're going to any given place in your day, you drive by your house twice, once leaving and once coming back. Mm-hmm. Like, it – of course, 70% of car accidents happen near your home because that's where most of your driving is done. Anyway, so it's like kind of like a false cognate because... Most of the transatlantic traffic goes through the Bermuda Triangle. Right. I'm just saying that to equate this town. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But anyway, so the Bennington Triangle is actually real because this was a uncharacteristic number of people to disappear in a five-year span. One person per year. Um so that's – it's very spooky and I could find nothing about any of the other people except that they ranged from an 8-year-old boy to a 74-year-old hunter. But I'm going to keep digging on that and mm-hmm. pulling that thread because I want to know like – I don't know. It's very X-Files. Yeah. So if like, you guys want to hear more about these other people who disappeared here or if you are from the area or are familiar with the area and have info for us, you should definitely reach out and let us know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm interested too. I'm intrigued. So, uh, we'll look on our end, but I mean, if that's something that you guys are also passionate or curious about, get in touch. Um, what do you think happened to her, Matt? Uh, she speculate. She, well, I don't know. She probably got lost in the woods. She probably did, did an irresponsible thing, which a lot of people do. Like I'm not putting blame on her or anything, but a lot of people do irresponsible things and go into the woods unprepared. She probably went for a walk because she was, you know, maybe stressed about studies or something. College is a super stressful time. And like, I remember having, you know, like dissociative stress episodes during college too. Um, So going and, and, you know, going for a long walk in the woods, it seems tempting sometimes. And I think that maybe is what happened. There is the case of the four other people that disappeared and Fred Gadet, though, the lumberjack who, who supposedly drove up that way. Maybe Fred, maybe the four other disappearances are completely unrelated and Fred Gadette accidentally hit her with his car or something and maybe thing, that was it. Right. The it, thing that gets me is no evidence. Like we've no never evidence. found like a shoe or a sock or a coat. This was also the time before things like, you know, even blood typing. Like mm-hmm. this, this was, or maybe blood typing was a thing, but, but it certainly wasn't used in forensic senses. This was before, you know, DNA tests and, and blood tests could, could really prove the identity of a person. So, you know, Fred Gadette probably could have scrubbed away, you know, 1950s evidence by just giving himself a car wash if, if there yeah. was evidence in his car. So it, this, this is a case that is, to me, at least, interesting, one, because of the complete lack of physical evidence, but because Paula was the second of five people to disappear in this area, seemingly very innocuous, very, like, small-towny area. Mm-hmm. She was the second of five people to disappear shortly in a period after World War II. Right. It's, like, it's it's a really strange time and a really strange set of circumstances, um, but it's also interesting because it, it, it helped lead to the creation of a much larger, greater good for this yeah. amount. So. Something that would be interesting to me, and maybe I'll do some research on this, is how many Jane or John Doe's have been found in that area, in those woods. I'm sure that they would be able to get um, 
DNA samples from her family members. I mean, she had a lot of siblings. You know, yeah. I'm sure that she has family who is still alive. So that's something that they could test. Um, but I'd be interested to know just how many overall people have been found or have gone missing there. I mean, and that's the other thing to know, too, is that Occam's razor is usually true. And so yep. if you go out in the woods and it's getting dark. And you're unprepared. You're unprepared. You don't have a flashlight. You know, you're not dressed appropriately. Um, you know, I think that we've all kind of made headstrong decisions of I'll be fine. It'll be great. And Especially then, when you're 18, 19. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, things things happen and we don't know what sort of nooks and crannies there might be out in yeah. that forest. So, but really, if you guys are, you know, from the area or know anything about these cases and want to share with us, that would be fantastic. Yeah, reach if out you're, to us, mysterypodcast.com. Yeah. You We're can message on, us on Twitter, on Instagram. Not on Facebook. We have a Facebook discussion group, but... Um, it's inaccessible to us right now. I'll put it that way. <laughs> we lost the password. We lost the password. <laughs> so also, if you know how to hack into Facebook yeah. and want to figure that out for us, let uh, us know. Let us know. Yeah. Um, but tell us what you thought about this case. Tell us if you're interested in hearing about the other missing persons case. Do you have a case suggestion? Yeah. Is there, you know, a missing person or an unsolved murder that is maybe not been covered by a podcast before or is, you know, a really big deal in your area, but you don't think it's attention, um, let us know. We are always looking for suggestions. Otherwise, you can look forward to hearing from us again, hopefully a week after this airs. Hopefully. Or two weeks. I'm not going to make any promises. Yeah. But hope you enjoyed the show. Yeah. Thanks for listening. 